they stole the show and no one expected it. It was just small community theater, merely a walk on part. It was kind of an unusual interjection into the play, an unexpected scene, but a small child, incredibly cute, came on the stage with two lines and brought the house down. The people roared with applause, and afterward, all anyone could talk about was the cute kid with two lines who stole the show. I think the book of Jonah suffers the same fate. That is, all anyone can talk about is the fish. This great fish that swallowed Jonah, that's what they remember. This fish is the most criticized fish in all the Mediterranean Sea. And yet he only had a walk on part, or a swim on part, I guess you could say. In fact, Jonah is merely a supporting actor. God is the real hero of the story. And it's all about the incredible kindness of our great God. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 2, that portion of Scripture that Pastor Doug read just a moment ago. And we notice from the very first verse, from the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God couple interesting things in the Hebrew it starts out with these two words Jonah prayed and often in ancient languages the words that come first in a thought a pattern or a paragraph are to emphasize what is taking place Jonah prayed and the word inside is literally the word stomach in the word in the language of Hebrew so Jonah prayed from the stomach of this great fish. Impossible, critics say. Um, improbable, perhaps, but not impossible because it has happened. There are historical occasions when individuals have been found inside a huge fish, maybe even a whale. And we don't know that this was a whale. I'm told that one of the largest uh, whales, the blue whale or the sulfur bottom whale, is about 80 feet long, that it weighs about 150 tons, has multiple compartments in its stomach, each of which are large enough to hold several people. And added to that, there is an air chamber 14 feet long and 7 feet high. Well, that's bigger than many of our bedrooms. And sometimes these great fish, if they, if they digest an object, which I'm told they have no teeth and they swallow their objects whole, they can swallow a horse whole without breaking a bone. If they don't like what they've swallowed, they can put it into this air chamber and then at a future time, just spew it out and reject it. Well, I don't know if this was a whale. It doesn't make any difference. God is God, and he can do whatever he wants to do. But this story is history. We know of that because of 1 Kings. We know of that because of Matthew 12. Jesus uses the story in a historical perspective. It's an amazing story with an amazing message. God is incredibly kind to the sinner. We notice Jonah inside. What do you do inside a fish? Well, number one, you stop running, and number two, you start praying. What else can you do? 
And Jonah was asked to pray back in chapter 1, verse 6, and as far as we can tell, he didn't pray. When there was a great storm and all the sailors were praying to their gods, the captain ordered Jonah to pray, and there was nothing, and a good reason for it. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's Psalm 66. Unconfessed sin stops our prayer. Trying to pray with sin in your heart is like trying to talk with a fishbone caught in your windpipe, nearly impossible. And so I think Jonah had to tell the captain, I can't pray, I'm running away from God, and so they threw him overboard, and now he's swallowed by a great fish, and all he can do is pray. Life never stands still for us. Either we're running with God, or we are running from God. Jonah was running from God in chapter 1, and now he's running back to God in chapter 2. I want you to notice, first of all, God's chastening hand. It actually began with the great storm in, in chapter 1 and the gracious sailors, but now it continues with the great fish. Jonah's in horrible uh, stress. We read in verse 2, I'm in distress, and in my distress, I called on the Lord. If you put the pieces together, his situation indeed is traumatic. If you were claustrophobic, <laughs> being inside an animal like this in a tight spot would be bring on horrible stress. Not only that, but he was in imminent danger. He was entombed in a fish, engulfed in the sea, and estranged from God. There was both danger in his physical setting, and there was danger in his spiritual distance. And the spiritual condition was far more precarious than his physical condition. The physical condition is described in verse 2. From the deep in the depths of the grave, I called out for help, and you listened. Again, maybe a literal rendering of the Hebrew would sound like this. Out of the belly of hell, or the belly of Sheol, the grave. That's where I prayed from. You hurled me into the deep, verse 3, into the very heart of the sea and the currents, the floods swirled about me. All your waves and all your breakers swept over me. I don't know how much Jonah enjoyed being in water, but no one enjoys being engulfed and overcome by the power of the sea. But he acknowledges, too, in verse 4, that I'm banished from your sight. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threaten me. Literally, the waters are at my throat. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed is wrapped around my head. Now, imagine yourself inside of a fish's stomach with whatever that fish has swallowed. The horrible smells, the blackness and the darkness, the sliminess and seaweed everywhere. This is pretty graphic. God's chastening hand is on Jonah, and he was hurled into the deep. By the way, that word has come up several times. God hurled a storm 
in chapter 1. The sailors hurled Jonah over the side. He's been hurled into the deep. It's the very word that's used often for the hurling of a javelin. It's being cast away and cast out. Now, who did this to Jonah? Was it the sailors? Well, they were the instruments, but look again at verse 3. You, O God, hurled me into the deep. This is your work. You sent the great wind. You provided the great fish. And I'm here because of your chastening hand. I think it is comforting to know that we are never abandoned into a world of irrational chance. God is sovereign over everything. One of the greatest testimonies of a person suffering and yet giving praise to God comes from Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was in her teens, she dove into into the Chesapeake Bay, broke her neck, and became a quadriplegic. She was a Christian, but she had been running from the Lord, not really walking with him. And after her accident, still was running for quite a while. But God got a hold of her. She writes in her excellent book on suffering called A Step Further, Today as I look back, I am convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by God's love. I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the brunt of some cruel divine joke. God had his reasons behind my suffering, and learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. Johnny goes on to say, when God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or be it drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues you have been avoiding. (laughs) Just like Jonah, you've been running from them. Johnny goes on, God is pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue to try to live in two worlds, obeying Christ and following my own sinful desires? Am I going to refuse to worry and learn to trust? Am I going to be grateful in these trials? Am I going to abandon my sins? In short, Am I going to be like Christ? God provides the suffering, but the choice is yours. So God brought upon Jonah some suffering due to his own sin and rebellion, and God's chastening hand always goes after his children. He loves you too much. He is too resolute to let you go. He will not allow his children to sin successfully. He'll go after you and bring you back in grace and mercy. And that's exactly what he did. So here is Jonah under the chastening hand of Almighty God. Taken by a fish, look at verse 6. To the bottom of the mountains I sank. The earth barred me beneath. It seemed like forever. He went down into the abyss, and yet there's hope. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Submerged. Verse 7, my life was ebbing away. I think it's possible that Jonah died. He was in distress, 
brought to the point of death and maybe died and if that's the case then the Lord had to bring him back to life which is no problem for God the Bible uh, talks repeatedly about the Lord bringing people back to life like Lazarus so Jonah was at an end of himself before he really turned to the Lord someone put it this way Jonah was stressed out cast out grossed out and ready to check out and God's grace found him and changed his heart there was a young man who was a tremendously gifted athlete popular in high school good looking and rugged he was a party boy in many respects but his dad was a pastor and wanted him to go to Bible school he was so gifted he actually had a tryout with an NFL team as a halfback played football in college but because his dad wanted to go to Bible, him to go to Bible school he went but he didn't really apply himself and he wasn't really concerned and as he was driving the long way back during Christmas vacation from Bible school in the south to his home in California there was a horrible car accident and he should have died he was thrown from the car skidded on the pavement for a long period of time gravel embedded into his skin everywhere face messed up and in the hospital for a long time and that's when God got a hold of John MacArthur and he said by God's grace I'm going to stop running away from God and I'm going to start running with God and his long ministry for decades has shown the validity of that repentance and that faith. That brings us to the second thing, God's listening ear. While he is chasing us, he's listening to us. Look at verse two. Jonah says, from the depths I called to you and you listened to my cry. You answered my prayer. Now this is a prayer born out of affliction, not affection. You and I need to pray in both situations. Often we pray when we're in trouble, and that's okay, but we should pray when things are good. That's the prayer of affection. We love God so much, we want to spend time with him. We want to talk to him. We want to listen to him in his word. And prayer, I love this definition by Phillips Brooks. Prayer in its simplest form is merely a wish turned Godward. There's the recognition that God is there. There is the faith that he will hear, the confidence that he will answer. But it's merely a wish. And what does Jonah do? Verse two, he cries out of the depths. Verse four, he looks. He said, I will look again to your holy temple. Now that's probably the temple in Jerusalem where sacrifices were made and prayers were offered and even though he was from the northern part, from Gathhefer in the Galilee, he knows that that's the central location of the presence of God, and that's where the sacrifices were made. I will look again, what faith and hope, to the temple. Instead of looking in his own soul and seeing only hopelessness and despair, and that's what some of you are doing today. You look around and see the circumstances and you are hopeless. You look within and see your sin and you're overcome with despair. Look up 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Look up for hope and mercy because our God listens. This is a prayer that is born out of affliction, but it's also a prayer that is based on Scripture. If you take the verses, these 10 verses from Jonah chapter 2, you'll find out that they are basically a poem. They're a psalm, and many of the citations come directly from thoughts out of the Old Testament, and that's the way to pray. Take the Word of God, digest it into your soul, and make it your prayer. That's how I can tell you that God's a God of kindness because of the word of God. If I just looked around at this world, I may not come to that conclusion. If I look at my own heart, I see my own sin, and I think there's no hope, but when I look in the word, it says God is kind. His loving kindness never fails. And it's filled. This chapter is filled with the loving kindness of God. This story has as its grand theme, God is kind to sinners like you and like me. Some of you need to pause right now and pray. In your affliction, pray. Pray the scriptures back to God. Find promises. Embrace them as yours. And seek the mercy that only God can provide. And he will hear. So we go from the chastening hand of God to the listening ear of God and finally to the gracious heart of God. God listens, that's verse two. God offers hope, that's verse four. I will look again to your temple. God rescues, verse six. Yet you have brought me out of the pit. You've brought my life from the depths of the grave, O Lord my God. And verse 7 says, my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Now this is probably referring to heaven, not the temple in Jerusalem, but the heavenly temple where God is and hears our prayers. As for God, he listens and he delivers. You brought me up. The psalmist in Psalm 40 says the same thing. You delivered me up from the miry clay and set my feet on a solid rock. And therefore I sing songs of praise to you and so now because of God's gracious heart Jonah can be recovered and he has a new view of his enemies now a new view of his enemies look at verse 8 now I'm reading from the translation the NIV in 1984 they've changed it a little bit in 2011 but here's the 84 version those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs that is so poetic the new translation is they turn away from God's love for them which is true the Hebrew is rather stark if you regard vain idols you forsake your mercy that is the mercy that could be yours Those who cling to worthless idols. Now Jonah's thinking of the Ninevites that he hated who were his enemies. He was prejudiced. They had done horrible things to his people and horrible things to all kinds of people across the then known world and he hated them for it and yet God tells us to show love and grace to our enemies. 
Now he realizes that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. My friend, if you're clinging to a worthless idol, you're missing out on God's love and God's mercy and God's grace that could be yours. Wouldn't it be horrible to get to heaven filled with regret that all these gifts that God had offered you, you had rejected because of your own selfishness? He has a new view toward his enemies. He has a new commitment toward his vows. Verse nine, but I will sing a song of thanksgiving for my deliverance instead of grumbling about my calling. And I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. And then Jonah has a new understanding of God. I think he knew this. He says in verse seven, I remembered you, Lord. He knew that God was gracious. In part, that's why he didn't want to go and preach good news to a hated enemy. But now he says, I, I remember this. Salvation doesn't come from me, nor does it belong to me, nor is it mine to dispense. Look at verse nine. Salvation comes from, belongs to the Lord. And one translation puts it, I will make good on my vows, and I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. In other words, I'll go to Nineveh, I'll fulfill my vow, and I will preach to them the good news of rescue from the gracious God of heaven. Ultimately, he sensed God's heart for the lost. God's plan is always the same. God says, I will save you so you can go tell others. I will save you so that you will have the same heart that I do, a missionary heart. But this is not where the story ends. In fact, this is only where it really gets good. God is kind to Jonah in rescuing him. God is going to be kind to the Ninevites in saving them. But why bother with this guy Jonah? Because he is a sign. A sign of what? Look back at chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and he was inside the fish three days and three nights. Does that remind you of anything? Sure it does. Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights. Now, you don't want to be like Jonah. You don't want to trace his steps and endure what he had to endure, but someone did, and his name is Jesus. God forsook him. The waters engulfed him. He went down into the abyss. He was enclosed in a tomb. A stone was rolled over to seal him in, and three days he was silent from the world. He drank more than a mouthful of salt water. He drank the cup of God's wrath aimed at sinners. He drank damnation dry. Think of it. God pursued Jonah to the point of death for the salvation of many in Nineveh, but God pursued Christ to the point of the agony of death on a cross to save a world of sinners like you and me. Jonah's a sign. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. 
Jesus is talking to a group of religious leaders and they're asking for a sign, prove to us that you're really God, that the things that you say are true. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You say, what's the sign? Verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know, if Jonah died in that fish and was raised to life, wow, that's even a better sign. I don't know if it happened or not, but a better than Jonah has come. There is only judgment apart from God. But in God, there is amazing mercy and grace. Jonah displays the gospel truth that Jesus declares. Behold, both the justice and the mercy of God. Justice for those who run away and mercy for those who run to in faith. Jonah showed no compassion and brought judgment upon sinners. Jesus displayed great compassion and bore the judgment for sinners. A greater than Jonah has come. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, the story of Jonah is the story of Jesus and God's kindness to save you and give you a life forevermore. You know, it's possible that when Jonah came out of the fish, of course, he landed on a beautiful Mediterranean beach, the brilliant beauty of the B-side. It's possible that there he composed this psalm. He prayed it in the fish, but maybe composed it out of the fish. And then his steps revealed that his commitment to God was real. How about you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, show your mercy and grace to us in powerful ways today. In fact, you have already in Jesus. But draw the sinner, draw the runaway saint, and show them your wonderful kindness to forgive and restore and renew, giving a new perspective on the lost and a new perspective on our own commitment to you and a new understanding of your grace. And then, Lord, draw the sinner to yourself today, the person who's lost. I'm talking about the one who's never believed in Jesus. Oh, they believe in a God, maybe, but they've never turned from their sin to trust Christ alone for salvation. Lord, a greater than Jonah is here. May they put their faith and trust in you. In your name we pray, amen.